Not a single inch of wall space. Oh, no, there's a little tiny bit right there. Right there. Oh, for me? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we got to keep it like that. You look like a gentleman that likes to collect some stuff yourself. I, I have would, some over here. I, I was going to say, I, I, I'm I'm the pot calling the kettle black, I realize. <laughs> it's all good. I like it. It's... Uh, it gives character. That's why I like to leave everything in the background. You know, what I mean? that's what we clutter fucks always say. It gives character. We're we're basically sick people. We're basically people who should be institutionalized. But we've it's come up with a way. Order, yeah. yeah, it is. We're going to be in one of those reality shows. Like we're working. You know who the Collier Collier brothers are? Have we started taping yet? Yeah, we're popping. We're going. We're recording. We'll, 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 well, everybody, welcome back. To the boom basket. I was going to say, sometimes I just start talking without any introduction at all, and you never get a chance to say anything. So if you yeah. want to introduce anything, now's your chance. I'll shut up. Oh, no. There's only one thing to introduce. Alexander Hawk, I see you over there, Giddy. I'm going to let you bring it in. There's only one thing to introduce in this glorious episode of the boom basket cast. Well, I got to say, I am extremely happy that uh, you agreed uh, to come on and be interviewed uh, by us. Uh, I have to admit, I'm I'm a huge fan. Been following you uh, for a while. You you have to admit that you make it sound like like it's it's a horrible thing to have to like you've been tortured into actually expressing affection for you. It's like I I put like a hot pincer on your penis or something. I like. I like John Billingsley. All right, stop. No, it's true. I actually do. I mean, I mean, honestly. Um, but I mean, w- one of the things that I have to ask, which we ask uh, everyone on the show, is when did you uh, get the bug? When did you decide that you know, pretty much uh, devoting your life to you know the craziness, which is uh, acting, which is show business? What? What prompted you now, to uh, go down the rapid hole? Before I ask that question, because there's a little bit of uh, intro that uh, you've already kind of got. Now, first off, are we seeing pictures, or is this just re- audio? Uh, the, the this, yeah, this is audio and video. We have audio on Spotify, uh, but we also do a monthly uh, video show with the uh, interviews. Well, for those people who are seeing this, let it be noted that both Matthew and I have uh have rooms that are just just jammed full of crap. And I was saying at the beginning that I'm reminded of the Collier brothers and I'm wondering if you know who the Collier brothers are. Uh no, no. Collier brothers in the 1950s actually there's a wonderful novel written by E.L. Doctorow about the Collier brothers. Two two old men, one of whom was a war veteran and was crippled and who basically they lived in a gargantuan warehouse in New York City that was jammed floor to ceiling with newspapers and books and crap. The one who was crippled lived in the back corner in his wheelchair, and the other one would go out and forage, you know, bring back the food and yada, yada, yada. So one night the guy goes out to forage, comes back, and he trips and he knocks over a pile of newspapers and is buried alive, and the guy in the wheelchair dies. Eventually they are found, and it's like the Collier Brothers as a metaphor for the dissolution of society, and I'm just going to say that, Matthew, you and I, should play the Collier Brothers. I I support that fully. I'm I'm invested now. Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. a great, that's a crazy story. The the Cohen Brothers should make that movie. It's it's a it's a wild story. And for a, for a long time back in the fifties, you know, people kind of gave it a lot of uh, a lot of uh, metaphorical significance. Um, I don't know why necessarily, but it's uh, nonetheless it's always a story that's kind of tickled me. I don't know why because it's a horrible tragic ending, but nonetheless, <laughs> so, yeah. What are you going to do? Anyway, I digress. How did I get to be an actor? 
mostly it was winning a series of beauty contests, you know, year after year after year. And I was just kind of like tired of being kind of, you know, looked at only as a piece of meat. And I oh. thought, I've got talent by God. I can perform. And so I started uh, thespianizing. Um, you don't believe that. Uh, fifth grade. <laughs> I was, uh, I had moved up. This is the true story, which people, I, you know, I do so many interviews that I feel sometimes like I should just start making other shit up because people have heard the 90% of what I have to say. Yeah. Um, for the 5% who haven't, I uh, moved to Connecticut from the deep south and I talk like this. <laughs> and the northern children kind of tried to beat that out of me. So for a number of years, I was something of a pariah. But they had mandatory auditions for the school play in the fifth grade, which was a Christmas carol. And being a big reader, I was the only person who could lift the words from the page with some semblance of um, emotive commitment. So I was cast as Scrooge. And for the period of rehearsal and performance, I went from being the class pariah to the class star. And I fell in love, consequently, for purely egotistical reasons right. with acting. As soon as the play was over, I went back to being the class pariah, which is also... I think an interesting lesson for an actor because, <laughs> well, you got it. Enjoy it because it ain't going to last. And when it's done, you're back in the ash heap again. Yeah. It really yeah. is that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it was interesting. I was uh, looking at your IMDb and I noticed uh, the first film you were in was uh, Seven Hours to Judgment, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, 1988. Uh, Directed and starring Bo Bridges, and I was interest, uh, interested in, I mean, uh, the movies on uh, YouTube, and I watched it. I thought it was really well done, and I really loved your part. So, I mean, I was just curious how, how that came to be. Uh, well, one, I don't believe a word you just said, because it's one of the worst movies ever made. Um, and I was ridiculously miscast. I was cast as this tough pawn store owner. And I was all of 105 pounds sopping wet. And I looked like, a, you know, I just graduated from high school. And I'm supposed to be chasing Bo Bridges around the shotgun saying, Oh, yeah, I'm in our shit. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, it's uh, so, yeah, you're full of shit. Hey, uh, hey, 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 hey. Honestly, honestly, I think you were the best part in that scene. To be uh, yeah, well, that's a pretty uh, low bar. Yeah, Bo Bridges, I don't know why he cast me. I Honestly, I, I think he must have taken pity on me. He just thought, this poor kid um, starving for his first break. What the hell? No one's going to see this movie anyway. Bo Bridges, you know, wonderful actor, was wanting to begin a directing career. And as often is the case, what happens back in the day, this happens less now. Studios sign you to a deal and you get X number of pictures and you ask maybe to do something interesting, like, okay, I want to direct one. So they let you direct one, but it's something they give you $9 to do and maybe a lesser script, which I believe was the case in, in this instance. Um, however, However, yes, it's on my resume. It is not the worst movie I've done, which would be Shredder Orpheus. For oh, those man, Shredder, Shredder Orpheus is good times. And for those of you who are interested in, like, really plumbing the depths of my oeuvre, <laughs> I would say those two are the ultimate down beneath the carp and the and the skeletons and the moss. <laughs> That's where you would find those yeah. two. Well, I, I mean, I mean, the thing is, uh, being an actor, I mean, I, I myself have had plenty of films that fall down on, on my um, not not favorite, uh, extremely low 
among uh, what I've done. But one thing I've always learned is that no matter how bad a production is or, or how, how you think you, you did in that, you always learn something. You always learn something. So learn- there's always something you get out of no matter how bad the project is. Yes. I mean, you you learn what jobs not to take in the future. It's it's I I indeed I I I did certainly I have learned my lessons down the years in terms of now I'm going to pass on that no, I'm yeah. pass, pass on that. Yeah. It's like a post apocalyptic skateboard movie. I enjoyed it. I I remember the, in the rental days, you know, back in the day, catching it then. You know what I mean? But oh uh, Lord, have mercy on my soul and on my body. <laughs> Somebody just asked me to uh, come to a uh, a retrospective of uh, of another movie that I was in many years ago that was equally putrid, and it was like a retrospective. <laughs> Good heavens, that's like having a retrospective of this trash that was, you know, like three weeks old, and we're gonna have a retrospective. It's like I can vault Nick with the retrospectives. You know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. As well. uh, mayhaps, mayhaps. I just I I like the fact we're starting with the worst of me. I like this. Good. Well, see, see, if we're, we're starting with the worst, that means we can only go up from here. You can only go up. Indeed, indeed, you can only go up from seven you can hours. Only, only go up, and 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 that that is a, uh, a true. Uh, I mean, if if you stayed at the same level throughout the entire career, then then there would be a problem. But and that is true. Those were those were those were early days. I was primarily a, a stage actor. In fact, I had absolutely not an inkling that I would ever do film and television. It was the farthest thing from my mind. I got out of bennington college i'd actually gone to college to be a writer yeah. and uh, and realized that <laughs> that was a preposterous notion so i slid over to the acting uh, division where also all the girls were so uh, i got out of college thinking oh, i'm gonna be a stage actor and I realized i can't sing or dance so that's out new york is out and it's too fucking cold in chicago so chicago was out and i ended up in seattle and i i thought this is it i'm a theater company yada 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 so any film i did there was like yeah right <laughs> So um, yeah, yeah. That's why a lot of those older movies that you know they have those huge followings, and you always talk to people, and they say, "Well, I, I can't believe that was ever even seen." But it's like uh, it's because I think a lot of the cast was like a lot of stage folks and people that really wanted to break in, giving their everything, and that's why you got good performances and or at least believable performances, if you will, for the story being told. You know, I mean, we're not Orpheus, talking about either of these two films. Orpheus yes. is a wild, wild yeah. story. Uh, Everything have, about that movie is bananas. It's crazy. I have not seen that one. All right, yeah. if you say so, that's all right. Clearly, it's you're like Forbidden Zone knowledge. a little bit. If anybody out there likes Forbidden, the, 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 the that right. round. Well, it makes you happy. I ain't gonna watch them again, but if it makes you happy. <laughs> Well, you know, it's hard to get. So if you have a copy of it and you're not going to watch it, it is, thank God. It is, thank God, hard to get. (laughs) That is, that is one of its best virtues. It's, it's hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. God knows if it was on everybody's plate, I'd really be in trouble. Big money. eBay, big money. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't get many residuals for Shredder Orpheus. In fact, fact, you got to send me a nickel. I want a nickel for me too. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, okay. We, we talked about two of, uh, that say the lesser known or lesser appreciated uh, works of yours, but this, this or the about stinkers as some the like stinkers, that. yeah. All right. But you can't tell me that Out of Time was a stinker. No, Out of Time was good. I, I thought yeah. Out of Time was good, and uh, and uh, unfortunately, because the nature of the film industry is such as it is, it was not released at a good time. You know, the fall 
these days is kind of the the dead zone. After kids go to school, no more summer blockbusters before the Oscar movies. So they didn't really know what to do with this wonderful kind of B noir picture that was very stylishly made, but you know, was still a summer escapist entertainment movie. So they kind of aired it in October. It disappeared at the box office. And it, you know, it's too bad because I thought it was, it was very beguiling and, and, uh, and exciting. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's great because I you haven't seen it. Denzel Washington, Eva Mendez, Saint Olathan, Dean Kane. Um, and yours truly. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to. Not necessarily it. in that order, mind you. <laughs> Not how I would bill them. Yeah. John Billingsley in Out of Time with and Denzel Washington. But, but I mean, you do have to say, you do have to say that I think the scenes with you and Denzel, especially like at the end, when and when you guys do that whole stick of like, you gave me the wrong address and, and all of that. I thought that was by far one of the funniest and best scenes in that movie. It's it's great. They were Carl is a wonderful, wonderful director and was very open and it was a young writer who actually had written the script, so he as well was open to a fair amount of improvisation. You know, you never know when you're gonna get cast in a project whether or not they're gonna be sticklers for stick with the script, stick with the script, or they're gonna give you some latitude. I love it when I get a little latitude because I can usually find a way to make sure I'm staying within the boundaries of the scene and still, you know, kind of elbow uh, some of the moments out. And he was game and Denzel was game. And so for me, that was kind of a, a, a rare and wonderful experience. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Denzel, you know, one, one, one of his, the, 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 you know, the best of his times, people would say, how is, how is Denzel to work with his, an actor off of as an actor and like that type of platform? As an actor, he's amazing. I mean, yeah. you know, he's, you know, completely present in every moment. He's very playful. He's a great listener. He's, you know, obviously got, you know, the chops to go in any direction in any way. He's got the ferocity to suddenly scare the fuck out of you and the tenderness. Yeah you know, actually kind of lead you to believe you could be your best pal. As a as a guy, I mean, the reality is that when you're working with the A's, you know, the stars, they've got a very, very, um, they've got an enclave around them. And, and to a certain extent, you understand why they do. So I didn't, and I can't say that I felt like I got to know him at all. I mean, that was not, that was not on. Right, right. So I, I can't speak to him except in a professional way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, legendary though. And you brought up Carl, uh, Carl Franklin. I'm a fan of Carl Franklin. You know, I uh, yeah. went on to do a lot of TV stuff, which was cool. More recently, he did like uh, some of the Dahmer uh, miniseries, and he worked. On- yeah, he works. He works all the time. And uh, unfortunately, our paths have not really crossed professionally yeah. since then. Um, he did recently. I'm sure this isn't the last thing he did, but he um, was one of the executive producers on a show called Manhunt, which I was in. Um, about the hunt for Lincoln's assassins, specifically Booth, of course, who takes it on the lamb, rounding up the others who were in Washington and their eventual trial. Unfortunately, he really had hands-on in the first three episodes, and I didn't appear until the fourth or fifth episode, so we just missed each other. Yeah. Uh, but a wonderful man. I just really, I so loved working with him. And, you know, <laughs> completely bizarre and random, this universe. The reason I got that part in part was because Denzel had veto rights on the casting. Hmm. And 
for reasons I won't go into, basically said no, 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 no to every name actor until it was down to, well, I guess we'll just have to get a nobody, and that's what <laughs> they got me. It's a beautiful so, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was my it was my anonymity that got me that part. Uh, you know, we often talk about how great that is. Whenever I see like, you know, like when they did the 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 secondary Pennywise movie recently, you know, I thought they cast casting you know, known comedians was like a weird vibe for it because you want to be able to kind of relate, take them out of you know, not. Yeah. It's great casting in the sense of like now there's no longer another character in the audience's mind while you're doing your thing. You know what I mean? It's a weird thing to be a character actor because there are these sort of, you know, I mean, it's obviously extremely subjective, but there are different rungs on the ladder. And um, you're on some level always kind of thinking like, you know, I'll, I'll know when I hit that next rung when I'm either being offered more parts or I'm getting to audition for parts against a certain, you know, um, and I, I feel like I've kind of been in between rungs for the last decade. Uh, so, and there's, you know, unfortunately there's not a whole hell of a lot you can do about it. Um, at a certain point as you age, your, your, your resume has precedes you. Yeah. People's perceptions are what they are. I think in part because I did a lot of genre stuff. I work. But that next level up that might have allowed me to kind of go a little bit farther, particularly in the film world, couldn't quite grab that brass ring. Not that, yeah. you know, no sour grapes. I've had a lovely life and a nice career. So, I mean, Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, many, many, many people don't even get to, you know, where you were that type deal. So, like, you can uh, – it's always like that, that yin and the yang. Like, we yeah. – and Alex over here pursue film as well, and it's like – you know what I mean? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funky thing, you know? It's like, but as opposed to say a corporation where it's like everybody's got a title and the hierarchy is very clear. This ridiculous and eternal subjectivity of where you are as an artist in, in in a a world is, is always, it's always a little chin, you know, like, like, can I get to, no, I don't think that's quite how I'm being perceived. Oh, well. Anyway, as, as an actor, what motivates you more, like, in the present time, entertaining the audience or, like, knowing that with film and TV, it's kind of forever? So, like, you're always there, you know what I mean? Performing, entertaining. I, I, I shifted out of stage work. I I don't imagine I'm ever going to do a play again. I, I The last play I did was uh, 10 years or so ago. The appeal of stage work is, of course, one, the immediacy and getting a chance to get an immediate reaction from an audience, and two, the likelihood that you're going to play more interesting parts in more um, demanding and perhaps more um, um, literate texts. On the other hand, it doesn't pay nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Double negative. And it it is extremely difficult to get to yeah. good stage work. So many things have to come together. You've got to get the right cast, the right director, an audience has to be interested in seeing it. The production values have to come into place, blah, blah, blah. After, you know, candidly three or four plays in a row that I was kind of marking the days off on the calendar, I thought, I think that's it for me. I think I'm just going to kind of become full-time film and TV actor. Yeah. I like the smallness of it. I like the intimacy of it. I like getting paid and the hours are better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, part of me always kind of feels like, you know, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> for where I started and what my, you know, like youthful ambitions were, I never would have imagined 40 years later that I would have abandoned that part of my, uh, of who I was. But life is, life has changed. 
it's like a weird legacy thing. I, I think, I don't know. Cause I think we've talked about this before on the show before where it's like the theater is great and the, you know, I love it, but like, it's for the group that is there at the time. And like, it's, it's not like it's there forever. You know what I mean? It's for that group that comes in and then shows over type deal. You know? I, I think in an idealized world, you know, to the extent that an actor could kind of like, you know, wave a magic wand, you yeah. probably keep a foot in all camps. Yeah, yeah. And I always thought I would. It's just the nature of um the nature of stage work, its its demands are much greater on you. Yeah. One. And uh as I get older, you know, I mean the reality is is that the show comes down at eleven, eleven thirty and and you're wired. Mm. You know, you've had to get to the place where you're at your peak at eight o'clock. Your entire day is set up to be at your peak at eight o'clock and at 1130 when you're done and you're wired when you're younger, it's like, that's okay. I'm going to go out carousing with all my pals. Yeah. When you're 63, it's like, I don't want to be fucking at my peak at 1130. <laughs> I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I, I very much admire older actors who have maintained a life in the theater and a film and TV career because it is extraordinarily difficult to do just physically, just, um, you know, spiritually, the nature of how you cobble that together. It's, uh, it's know. a juggling act for sure. Yeah. Uh, Alex over here is the actor of our group. And oh, okay. I've often told him, I was like, Hey, you ever think about like wanting to go do some theater? You know what I mean? Going because they used to back in the day, and the yeah. scheduling's just so crazy. For yeah, me. I mean, I mean, the downside is, I mean, uh, we uh, we both live in Boston, so we're not like in the hub of either New York or California. And and the fact is that it's easier for. I mean, I'm since I'm in the position where I'm at, I'm willing to you know pay the flight, fly myself out there. You know, just to get myself on the set and, you know, do it for peanuts if I have to. Just to, you know, get the experience and get out there. But unfortunately not have the ability to, you know, move all the way out to California. Not not at this point. Not to, uh, unless I win the lottery. But, uh. There's a chance of the lottery. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is that I, I mean, as I'm guessing with also you, just I love the work. I love inhabiting a character and doing and, and trying to change and, and, and see what I can do to bring a character to life. I love telling stories. And that's that's why I do it. I mean, I honestly, uh, it's it's I consider it like my drug. It's what what just keeps me going. And mm-hmm. I just love it so much that, you know, I travel to. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I do not have the same relationship to acting that I did even ten years ago, much less twenty or thirty. I mean, you know, one, um, I'm sixty three, and you know, life changes as you get older. It's no longer, uh, uh, you know, my my mana. I like it. I, I enjoy it. I'm happy to work. I'm 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 always will be happy to work. But I'm also absolutely fine if you know if weeks and months go by. Um, yeah, I think it's really important, particularly as you get older, but always for an actor or an artist to make sure that, you know, you don't become one of these cliches where it's like you want to put a bullet to your head because you don't have a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just not, in my opinion, healthy, which is where, where books come in. And it's like, you know, one, a wife who I love mm-hmm. and, uh, and two, I love to read. So if the work is there, huzzah, 
if the work isn't there, it's like, that's fine. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fine. So much you can't control yeah. in, in, in this business. Up, yeah. There's so many ups and downs, you know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, and, and it's a visual business. It just, you know, it's the na- it, less so on stage. I think that's the other thing that, you know, is, is something you give away. When you're a stage actor, you're going to play a wider variety of roles, and you're going to find people who are willing to take a chance on casting you against type. Uh, in film and television... The tendency is, I think, for most people to feel like your immediate visual impression is so critical in a in a filmic piece that they're not going to go against type with you. And consequently, you know, my the range of characters you can play emotionally, I can play a wide range of characters, but no one's ever going to cast me as, you know, um, the, the the head of a detective bureau or the, you know, a lot of authority figures that I'm not, even though I'll read well for them, I know I'm not going to get cast because I don't project visually that image. That's the other thing that I find a little tricky about film and television. It's just the nature of it is, you hear this from women all the time, of course, the nature of it is that as you get older, the box gets tighter. Yeah. yeah. The, the competition falls away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, you also, it's amazing sometimes you audition for something and then you see who got it. It's like, oh, fuck, I was never going to get it. Look who got it. Right. Look who I was competing against. Oi. Yeah. So. But yeah, I mean, going with what you say about doing uh, different uh, characters and, and all that, um, I mean, I remember uh, watching you in Cold Case, uh, that, that series. Where you know you uh, played uh, the serial killer George. George, yeah. And I have to say, it's funny in in the sense that up to that point, I, I've seen you in a lot of different roles. Of course, mainly more comedic, more you know, fun, good natured. And then you know, seeing you in is such a just a, a despicable you know serial killer uh, character. I'm. You gotta be. That blew me away. I mean, it was it was something that you know I wasn't expecting, and and showed like so much. And I I thought I thought it was a great job. I really I mean, oddly I will say that my if I had a breakout role in Los Angeles, it was uh, playing a uh, deranged child molester on NYPD Blue. Oh yeah, that was the first part that actually kind of opened doors for me. Um, I'd moved up here in 95 and it was late 97 and I was kind of living on piss by then. It was like I'd spent the 20 grand I'd husbanded to make the move. And I was like, what am I going to do? I'd been into that office a couple of times and uh, no luck, even though I thought the auditions went well and they brought me back and that was just a couple of scenes, but that despicable character kind of got me a run of work that, you know, took me into my first series. So oddly enough, and thank you for your kind words, it was playing a villain that really launched my career. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, going with the whole, <clears throat> I mean, character, actor, um, you know, thing, you know, playing, you know, like serial killers, villains and all that, usually ends up being uh, what gets a lot of character actors you know, a lot of steady gigs and keep them going. At least, I mean, we've had some people on uh, that, yeah. you know, their entire careers are mainly playing villains. Well, it's the nature of it's the nature of the product, you know. I mean, uh, it, 
there's, <laughs> you know, once on television, if, if, what's that statistic, this lunatic statistic that, you know, the average 10 year old has witnessed 3000 murders <laughs> on television. Uh, I mean, it, it, an actor's bread and butter is going to be, you're going to be the villain. You're going to be the, the victim or you're going to be the red herring for half of your career. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, for those people who drop handily into like, you know, scary villain, like, you know, they just project scary either because yeah. of their size or because of, you know, they've, they've got, they've got their own niche. My, my villains were always somehow either kind of like pathetic, you know, child molester, like they're kind of deranged mm. or it's like, he's the last guy I would have suspected. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I mean that that's that's a great you know ability to do because definitely I mean when when you're an actor and you're doing a lot of different uh, and you're trying to stretch you know yourself that it's always good to you know be able to be the last person that anyone is suspected. Um, also, I do have a question for you: uh, uh, the series, the nine, um, yes, that you were on. Now I have to say, I was a big fan of that, and unfortunately, it it died. Uh, only did thirteen episodes. Yeah. Um, I do have a question for you, and, and you're probably the first person I've gotten the chance to ask this. Is with when you have a character that's in the series that you know, of course, you're hoping it'll go for multiple seasons. Do you plan out in your mind, kind of like? Where you want the character to go, or where you? Oh, see you have you have no you have no idea. You have no control over it. I mean, you know, unless unless you have a particularly intimate relationship with the creators, and they're you know kind of telling you. For instance, they told Chai McBride. I don't know if you yeah. watched the whole series. Yeah, yeah. Just for the people who are listening, to give you a little bit of backstory, the show was about a bank robbery that went wrong. And the first half of each hour-long episode shows you in supposed real time what's happening in the bank robbery. So, you know, first half hour and it's like these robbers break in. And the next episode, the second half hour is like they're taking people hostage, yada, 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 yada. Chai McBride plays the bank manager. The second half of each episode, we've flashed forward in time. We know some people survived and some people didn't. And we're seeing the characters that we got to know in the bank robbery now you know kind of putting their lives back together so the time schism was confusing to people what was interesting is they chai mcbride it turns out was in on it the whole time the bank manager so the creators of the show talked to chai because they felt it was important for him to understand the whole arc of what uh what was going on in the bank robbery they didn't tell any the rest of us generally speaking if you're a series regular the the writers themselves don't necessarily know. Breaking Bad being an exception, of course. Vince yeah. Gilligan bought the whole thing out. But on network television, one, you don't know whether you're going to get you know a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, six years, seven years, ten years. So, and it's much more episodic by nature. It's not as serialized. So it, it's it's a constant surprise. I certainly, you know, what I loved about that show was on any given script. It was like. I don't have no idea what they're going to have me do. I'm leaving <laughs> my wife. I've got a girlfriend. Woo-hoo! Um, and that's what I loved about that character too, is he's somebody who in that show, uh, was perceived, rightly or wrongly, as being the hero when the bank robberies eventually, you know, when the, the villains are, are captured. I've played a significant role in helping that to happen. And this nebbishy guy who at the beginning of the show was suicidal 
suddenly is lauded. And for an actor to get to play that whole range from sad sack to hero, and then, you know, as he's beginning to kind of strut, realizing that, you know, that that hero role is actually not really, you know, real. He still has to live in the world. It broke my heart when that show was canceled. Yeah. I, I knew I knew that that was my best whack at the pinata. I was never going to get another whack like that. Yeah, I I really liked it. Um, yeah, it was one of the few uh, uh, shows that when it first came out, I saw the pilot episode and I was immediately hooked. Um, and of course, unfortunately for for us, they it was on after Lost, and they really tried to market it as kind of a thriller, and it and it really wasn't. I mean, the first half hours, the bank robbery part was exciting, but it was really more about the nature of how you survive trauma and how you you can you know, radically remake your life uh, when when necessity demands it. And and people, the first episode, we had like 10 million people watch the first half hour. Eight million of them turned off yeah. in the second half hour. It's like, you come to work the next day, it's like, oh, we're not a hit, we're a flop. Yeah. Uh, that's, inter- that's interesting you said that about like the questionable marketing almost, because we do any film and like, we've been a part of films that have gone out and like, we made a thriller that after it got picked up, the distribution company considered a horror movie. But it wasn't, and the horror audience like shitted on it for that reason. You know yeah. what I mean? And we've also been a part of a film that wasn't a horror; it was a comedy. But they gave it like a a horror. They changed the name and made it look like a horror movie because they know that they just want the DVD bought. They don't care what people say after the fact. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it is. You're, you're. I mean, like actors are also the mercy of editors. You know, I mean, yeah. there's just so much that you have no, it's no it's, control over. It's wild at a big network like that that they even have like flub ups in their their marketing. You know what I mean? A little bit. Oh, little bit. all the time, yeah. all the time, and because they don't really know themselves, you know. Yeah. And and they are they are trying to. And I understood it. It's like the biggest problem was there are only so many slots. I mean, streaming has changed so much of this, yeah. but pre-streaming, you know, they're trying to put frequently a round peg into a square hole. The expectation of people who are watching Lost is that they want to watch that kind of show. And, you know, ABC doesn't have another Lost. So what's the closest thing they think they can get is us. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, yeah. That's, yeah, streaming really has put a hurting on television. You know, must-see TV. You used to have to tune in that night to watch yeah. it and not see it. Well, I mean, I in many ways, it's the golden age of television. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's like between... You know, Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and et cetera, et cetera, and HBO and Showtime and yada, yada, yada. I mean, it, there's there's no dearth of great stuff to watch on television. It's amazing. And people back in the day that you never would have thought would do television. Now it's like, well, Jesus, who doesn't do it's television? It's a platform, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, on some level, what that's meant is that the nature of how money gets made is, is um, you know, it, there's – as we see, I mean, streaming services are beginning to realize they've kind of gotten out over their skis. They have to pull back on their product. Their model isn't actually ultimately sustainable, the subscription model. How do you introduce advertising now? People are going like, I don't want to watch fucking ads. It's like, yeah, but we don't start selling ads. We can't do it on subscription alone. 
our residuals are, you know, dramatically reduced, which for any working actor, that's bread and butter. I'm lucky that I got my years in during the network TV model because that's really where the money is. Right. Um, but as a viewer, I think this is an infinitely more interesting time to be watching television. I mean, network television, you know, you were still trying to make it palatable for the, you know, the lowest common denominator audience or you wanted, you know, the kid to watch it with the grandparents. So, you know, with exceptions, it was always, you know, it was watered down. Yeah. I mean, I find still it's like, you know, candidly, I shouldn't say this because I do CBS shows, but you know, the nature of what the audience are trying to appeal to, it's like, it's very cookie cutter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it's a, they got to play it really safe nowadays. Like yeah. the culture is really weird right now where you do the wrong thing. It's, it's the end of the road for you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to see culturally how many things, you know, many people have said, I think one of the things that our culture did was kind of open up the concept that, oh, I guess there are a lot of gay people. I guess I know a lot of gay people. Oh, I guess it's not such a horrible thing to be gay. That is, I think, something that popular culture did. I I do think what popular culture has not quite figured out a way to do is like for television to kind of really break the, the mold of how stories can be told to make them more interesting. Yeah, uh, it's still a large percentage of the audience that kind of wants your traditional, you know, five act structure and and wants to kind of watch the same thing. Yeah. Every night. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for streaming. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. They say YouTube's huge, too. Like, uh, like they did some type of poll and they were saying, like, YouTube's one of the most watched platforms which uh, even outside of these streamings, I know a lot of people, I got family members that just watch YouTube all day long. Crazy, 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 crazy. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I like to read more than anything else. So my, I'm very sparing on my uh, consumption of media. Um, yeah. But I, you know, on the other hand, I also feel like as opposed to when I was growing up, it's like, what's on television tonight? Well, the Beverly Hillbillies is on, Ironside is on. And, you know, it's kind of like you know, more or less kind of, Pablum. Yeah. Now it's like, I mean, it's if anything, it's like that gag where you turn on Netflix, it's like an hour and a half later, it's like, I can't make up my mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty think, Do you think that would ever be a problem? Too much options? I find it I find it daunting on on, you know, I when I watch television, like figuring out my wife and I will watch a series. Yeah. I commit to that series. It's like, well, what do you want? I don't know. How about, yeah, well, yeah, but what about what the Americans supposed to be good? Well, what about, oh, but I want, uh, 45 minutes will go by before we kind of like, you know, land on one. Yeah. Um, so no, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I'm certainly very cognizant of these great things. And then that doesn't even encompass foreign television, mm. which is the other thing that's a radical change is, you know, when I was growing up, it's like, yeah, right. I'm going to get a chance to see. You had you had uh, Masterpiece Theater, mm-hmm. and 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 BBC, and so you could you know see some some English shows. But nowadays, it's like you can see the best of the best being made all around the world, which I think is is remarkable. Yeah. Um, it's very cool to see, you know, because each each you know all of the place they have different vibes and different energies to films and stuff, and it's always cool to see like go watch a, a comedy from a different country, you know what I mean? Or something like that to kind of get the flavor of it. You know, yeah. I always like call, call my agent, I think is an interesting one that has now yeah. been, adapted. you know, the French show adapted for Britain and now being adapted for America. And oh, uh, really? yeah. 
I know it's going to be infinitely more um, uh, uh, coarse, I would imagine. I shouldn't say I know that, but I suspect it's going to be infinitely coarser than it was in France. Yeah. Where I thought it was rather delicate. Um, but it, it, but it's very interesting to me to see how America puts its stamp on stuff from abroad. Back in the day, you didn't see the, like when All in the Family premiered in this, in 71 or whatever it was. They said it was based on a show originated in, that originated in Britain. We never saw the original. To see now, it's like, oh, I can go back and I can watch the show from which this has derived and see what they've done. I didn't know that. I get I love, I love All in the Family. I think it was one of the best shows of all time. Yeah, it was based on a, an English show, the name of which is Escaping Me, which now, of course, you can see, doubtless on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, sure that's how you, yeah. Look, look it up. Uh, the, the, English original for all in the family. They have their own Achibanka. Interesting. Achibanka. Yeah. I got a question about process for you. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm always curious when when you got to dive into these dark roles, serial killers, child molester type deals. It's a you know what what how much re- I know not you know research. I don't know real research goes into it, but like how much research. You I abduct a child. I abduct a child, and you know, yeah, that's I what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, just to get the feel. Yourself. I go on a murder spree. No, I'm very Strasbourgian <laughs> that way. It's like you know. Hey, hey, I hear method acting is all all the rage now. That's yeah. what happened. I, I know you like to read. You tap into serial killer books. Do you, certain music no. you like to like to listen to or anything? No, no, I don't. I, you know, I'm I'm very action oriented. I think for the most part, your job as an actor is to figure out what you're trying to achieve, beat yeah. to beat, beat to beat. And the nature of what it is you're doing and how your scene partner is responding to it creates behavior. Mm. The more you try and put a preconceived spin on it, you know, this is how villains act. This is what I, you know, I, I think the worse off you're going to be. Mm. <clears throat> so on that, on that level, I don't, you know, I, I never, it doesn't, I don't bat an eyelash because when you're playing a serial killer, it's like, look, I happen to get off on killing somebody. Yeah. And I, I can, I can, I can know that. Okay, my goal here is to see if I can get this young lady to get into the car, so I can get her home, so I can kill her. Yeah. You play the scene the same way you would play the scene as if you were trying to date her. Yeah. The, the, the action is is what matters. Yeah. You know, if you start playing the serial killer, you know, I mean, Cold Cold Case kind of asked you to. Mm-hmm. They, you know, and they wanted that. They wanted a level of theatricality to it, but you still have to justify it. So for me, in that instance, it's like this is a guy who his entire life has never gotten a chance to showboat, yeah. you know. And here's his chance to showboat that he's the smartest person in the room. He's never really had a chance to do that before. It doesn't mean that he plays a serial killer. He plays showboat, you know. So in that sense, I don't think you ever play the villain. You just kind of figure out what the, you know, what, what the driving action is, what the motivation is that, that is, is, can be put in, in, I used to teach. And the hardest thing I think is always to say, don't play the result. Don't play the emotion. Don't play the behavior. Don't predetermine what you want to look like, how you want to sound. What are you doing? What are you trying to achieve? What are you going after? What is your intention? What are you fighting for? And then to support it, why? Why do you, why do you do it? Maybe that's your question is the why, why do you like killing people? Yeah. You kind of got to imagine a lot of reasons, you know, mm. what it is that, 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 that makes that important to you. 
but I find that that's an imaginative exercise. It's pretty easy for me to do. You know, I, I can imagine my way into any imaginary circumstance. Yeah. That's, what, that's what Stanislavski famously said, uh, behaving truthfully in imaginary circumstances. And to me, I always th- thought that, you know, some of what, which I think, I think is frankly, we're reading helps a lot. The more you read, the more you open yourself up to a vast vista of imaginative circumstances. And the more you realize that anything is possible if you use your imagination. The actors who are prepared to use their imaginations to imagine their way into an action are, are and I, I find that to be not that difficult. Yeah. I know you said writing was your first love and you uh, even went to school for some writing. Is there a lost novel out there within those books? An unnamed novel maybe floating around? There, there, there were a couple of aborted novels. There's some yeah. short fiction that, that will never see the light of day. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I had the good luck and the bad luck, the good fortune and the bad fortune of studying with uh, Bernard Malamud, who um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He uh, is is one of one of the twentieth century's greatest writers. He wrote The Natural, the okay. book yeah, which the movie trashed. The book is not the movie. Okay. He also wrote The Assistant, which won the National Book Award. The Fixer won the National Book Award. Blah blah blah. He was my teacher as a sophomore in college, yeah. and it was like this intense class with only six of us, and we were supposed to submit our fiction. And Bernard Malamud, it's like taking an acting class with fucking Laurence Olivier. Yeah. You're 19 years old. And, you know, it was like, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and he ripped me a new asshole as well he should, because I was 19 years old. I was like, oh, you know, he took no prisoners. And it was like, I'm not a writer. <laughs> and I skedaddled to the acting department. Um, I, I'm, I've always been a reader. I, I, I it is my favorite thing to do. It is the one thing that, you know, will always, I, I couldn't imagine not being a reader. And so I, I, I realized that Peter Mathias and another fabulous 20th century writer, um, who was also a teacher at, at Bennington said, the world needs more readers. We got plenty of writers. And I kind of took that to heart. It was like, okay, I'll just, I'll be a reader. And it has been, and it, candidly, when I used to, when I used to teach, it was like, read, 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 read. Don't watch. Because when you watch, you're watching something that is not as deep and not as demanding and not as intense as the book you are reading. Read to become smarter. Read to become deeper. Read to become more fully rounded. Read to exercise your imagination and bring it into your acting. I find that a lot of writers who write for these mediums tend to write on the basis of the other TV shows they've watched, the other movies they've watched, and they just kind of repeat the same cliches mm. as opposed to, you know, actually like, what is, what is, what is this that is new, that is unique? I think great novelists and great short story writers are working in a, in a whole other ballpark when it comes to the complexity and specificity of what they're going for. That's a really good point. You know what I mean? If you're watching it, all you can really do is copycat. But if you're reading it, you can take it in and make it your own type deal. You yeah, and and not that writers, it. not that writers don't copycat other writers. You right. know, I mean, you know, you know, the world is full of writers who who are are. But the nature of how you find, and I think that's one of the things that I realized early on, as a, as a wannabe writer, is as voice, your unique and interesting voice. I was going to have a a voice right away as an actor. And I was not going to find my voice as a writer for years and years and years. Later on, I started writing again, and I probably could write now, but I'm 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 a little too old. To, I don't, <laughs> it's 
it's a you have to be extraordinarily disciplined, and I don't think I have that discipline anymore. Yeah. So, uh, out of all of the books, what, what that you've read, what would you uh, consider one of your favorites or genres of books that you like to read? I'm not a I'm not a uh, I'm not a great believer in genre. I think a great a, a well written book is a well written book, and so I read across all genres. I do read, you know, I like I mean I I'll intersperse uh, fun books. I'll, I'm not I don't mean to sound quite as snobbish as I probably sound. I'm certainly happy to read an Agatha Christie novel or you know any number of things, but I I kind of think you go back always, and there's this foundation of great literature that you have to keep returning to. It's like you know you got to eat your vegetables. Yeah. yeah, I suck at eating my actual vegetables, but when I'm reading, I can eat my vegetables. Yeah, yeah. Then I'll intersperse nonfiction. Um, I, I am just a love it or hated book. I I think The Infinite Jest is is a marvelous book. Uh, David Foster Wallace. Um, it's funny I, you bring that up. Yeah, we, brought, we were talking about that the last episode. I know he had like a very. Uh, and I was I was asking another guest. We had an author on uh, Brad Oates, huh? and I was like. I'm like I have I picked I I picked the book up. I remember when I first, I listened to him on YouTube do like a speech at a graduation called This Is Water, and it uh-huh. was like he got to this point where he's talking about like how you're at the grocery store, you, all these people are upsetting you, but like the reality is like put yourself in their shoes, and it was like powerful. So I started looking into him, and then I found out he had the horrible ending and stuff, and it was like Jesus, and I was like I should look into this dude. And the next time I went to Savers, which is like this used bookstore over by us, and ne- I seen the book and I grabbed it and I haven't read it because it's huge. But it's a, it's a good read. I'll read it if you say it's a good uh, well, read. Well, no, well, see, it's a love it or hated book. So I always okay, all right, yeah. prefaces. It's like, you know, some, some books that I fucking adore. Yeah. I'm not going to recommend to everybody because one, they are, they are, you know, they are deep dives. That book is a deep dive. That's like, I'm taking a month out of my life and this is my project. You know, you cannot attenuate it. You cannot like lay, you know, I'll just read a few pages every day. You'll give up. You gotta, you gotta say, I am marrying this book. Like Proust. I I love Proust, but it's like, you cannot like just dip in. It's like, He's, you know, somewhat similarly to David Foster Wallace, has a very unique voice, mm. has a very unique brain, tells his story in an extremely round yeah. Robin Hood's barn way, and you got to go on that journey, which is what I love about reading. It's like, I'm going to go on a journey with an amazing mind, and I ain't fighting you. I'm going on your journey. Yeah. Both of those writers are funny as shit, in my opinion. Yeah. But they're only funny as shit if you are prepared to go on the journey. Yeah. Uh, I have found that the people who like that book, you have to get through the first, the first chapter is a little tricky. I think about a hundred pages in, there's a wonderful monologue where this guy's waiting for his, uh, his uh, pot dealer to show up. Yeah. Having this neurotic, like, when is he coming? Why isn't he here? I'm going to, he's going to be here. Just calm down. Just calm down. No, he should be here. He should be here. It's like 10 pages long. And it's just like this incredible evocation of what it means to be like losing your shit, you know, because you, you are, you are hooked on a drug. And it's fucking brilliant. If you get, if you get to that section and you love it, read on. If you get to that section, it's like I'm bored, give up. I, I remember I opened it up and I looked, it was like super small writing and the book's like, thick oh yeah. And then, and I was like, and then oh, his whole stick is he footnotes like everything and the yeah. footnotes is like a whole separate fucking novel. Yeah, and, and they're brilliant. You have to read the footnotes. He's not for everybody. I I freely confess. Like Nabokov, I love Vladimir Nabokov. He's not for everybody. The annotated Lolita, 
I think Lolita is the most beautiful, savage satire of um, American uh, uh, solipsism and yeah. that I that you'll ever read. It's up there with to me, um, uh, David Foster Wallace in terms of what their targets are. Yeah. I like I like comic novels that are very hard to do. I don't like them if they are uh, childish, but I like a great mind trying to find a way to write a satire about things that you know need to be satirized. Where would you place like a Charles Bukowski? Because I know the, the the writing's good, but it's almost simpler. I feel. Would you put that? What What do you think about that? Uh, I I'm not a I'm not a huge Bukowski fan. I mean, yeah. you know, I I think he had a small gift that he kind of turned into a shtick. Yeah. And you know, he he was rewarded for his shtick. But I you know I think if you read a little bit of Bukowski, you've read enough Bukowski and can't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Poor, poor Charles. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like it, it's, it's some of those people who I think sort of have a a, a persona. Yeah, and their their authorial voice becomes. I mean, Hemingway is most often parodied because yeah. he's like, you know, it, it's it's the rough, tough he man, you know. And and Hemingway's written many beautiful books, but when Hemingway kind of was parodying in himself in a weird way, or he began to kind of believe his own press, yeah, yeah some of him is like. Oh man, you need an editor. Yeah. Um, and Wallace only released like three. Like he did some short story books, but then he only did like two or three actual like novels. Or well, he wrote he wrote some some brilliant essays, and one of my yeah. favorites is a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again about his experience on a cruise ship. Yeah. And he wrote a marvelous essay in which he. Uh, I mean, his essays. Are, in fact. Frequently, for those people who ask about David Foster Wallace, I say, read the essays, because the essays are fucking great. He's got a brilliant voice. They're manageable. And then if you dig the essays, then go go to Infinite Jest. His first book was called The Broom of the System, which is good, but it was his first book. It has it has great moments, not as fully finished, perhaps, as it would have been if he, you know, gone back to it. And then his last book was incomplete, although it's great, which is the sort pale, of uh, the Pale King or something like that. Pale King, Pale King. Yeah. Which I quite like. I, quite, I mean, I've read all this stuff, and I, I like, I like, I'd love him. I just it love was him. good. I think he's well. I think he's brilliant. I mean, I just think he's a brilliant writer. And, and you know, I mean, yes, he hung himself because he was a depressed. He was depressed. Yeah. But he writes about addiction and depression. In fact, if, if anybody I ever talked to who is is able to get to this part of the book. In um, Infinite Jest, much of the book is about a gentleman. The not ar- arguably there are two leads: a guy, a young man who's a student at a tennis academy, oh, and uh, and a fellow who's going through the uh, tri- going through alcohol anonymous, alcoholics anonymous. That section about him in rehab is it's it's hilarious. It's brilliant, and it's all the characters going through rehab. It is completely unsparing about the lunacy of rehab, and completely appreciative of the need for it. And it's the best thing you'll ever read if you are trying to figure out why people who are depressed and addictive are stuck. Hmm. Why they are stuck. Um, hmm. I always wish because I work a lot of, I work with, uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't work closely, but I'm, I've been involved for a number of years with uh, an organization that helps people who are experiencing homelessness. And one of the things you bump into a lot is that, you know, it's people who, for various reasons, have become either addicted to drugs or because they've been living on the streets, have developed forms of PTSD. 
and the circularity of the behavior, the the rat trap of it, you know, the the maze of it. It's like you can't break cycle. And I think David Foster Wallace is is as good as any writer has ever written when it comes to the that that like I, 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 how do you get out of that? That's why the Infinite Jest is a video that is supposedly the most like wonderful, funny, marvelous video you've ever seen. So much so that when you watch it, it's all you want to do is watch it. So it's got like horrible, scary, addictive, you know, possibilities, and it's the MacGuffin. <laughs> in the in the book and it's a stand-in for our, our addictive personalities hmm. i'm gonna have to check it out yeah I, I read an essay he did on like a uh cape cod lobster weekend oh yeah consider like consider a lobster yeah yeah that's, yeah, 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 yeah yeah that's one hey, of his classicals yeah he's that's a good writer he is a good writer for sure i'm gonna have to tap into that book yeah. But I, I, you know, I mean, it's it's also like it's like choose your favorite food. It's like if you're on a desert island, you don't want to eat any one food. So I, I right. could pick a hundred fucking books that I adore for radically different reasons. You know, and you like the Pale King? It didn't seem like he was unraveling or anything. No, no. I mean, he would have, you know, if he if he'd lived, he would have revised it. He would have, but you know, I mean, the guy couldn't. As far, as far as I'm concerned, the guy couldn't write a dull sentence. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he. Uh, I like I like stylists, you know, like Henry James. I love Henry James. I mean, Henry James is very orotund. You don't read that kind of guy anymore. There aren't too many people writing in that kind of. John Banville maybe is is one of the few an Irish writer, but generally speaking, that kind of like Thomas Mann comes to mind. These guys who sort of like you know, it almost yeah. reads bombastically. But the, the, the structure, the brain that can kind of conceive of like, you know, Faulkner, you know, these gorgeous half page sentences that somehow come together and carry this extraordinarily complicated set of thoughts. Yeah. It's a marvelous gift. Hmm. Um, I, I love Faulkner. I think Faulkner's fucking amazing. Yeah. On a, on a, on a, uh, see, I could talk about this all fucking day. Yeah. Um, you, just, you have to stop me because it's my favorite thing to talk about. I just read a, a, a wonderful mystery novel by a guy named Anthony Horowitz, who, you know, it, it was charming as shit. Yeah. Half of it is a novel by the novelist within the novel writing a pastiche of Agatha Christie. Hmm. And the one who's reading the novel, who's the editor, who's going to have to edit it, gets to the end, only the final chapter isn't there. What the fuck happened? And it turns out the novelist has died without finishing the book. Can that be? She has to investigate the novelist's death to find out what the fuck happened and why the book wasn't finished. It's great. Wow. <laughs> Just when you think there's no way you can go new. Great. It's good they to see Still yeah, breaking the, barriers the, down. The yeah. Magpie murders. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, we're big fans of Mick Garris on the show. Yeah. Uh, you worked on uh, Fear Itself. You know what I mean? The community uh, episode. I worked on Fear Itself, but I worked on The Others. And that's where I really got to know Mick. Mick? Uh, the Others was short-lived in 1999, and they did 13 episodes. It was uh, a series about a bunch of intrepid Ghostbusters that was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. Holy, that uh, sounds great. I, I haven't seen that, and I want to see this now. Well, check that out. It's hard to find. Um, it was uh, – Steven got pretty pissed off because NBC put it on at 10 o'clock on Saturday nights. Oh, jeez. This, this was the last gasp of Saturday night primetime programming. Hmm. Um, and Steven was like, fuck you. I'm Steven Spielberg, and you're putting my show on on the worst possible time slot. I'm done. He basically walked away. Yeah. Here we are on the air. Our executive producer and, and creative head honcho is kind of like, 
said screwed of network. It's like, um, 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 Mick Garris was executive producing and they brought on, uh, Jimmy Wong and Glenn Morgan from X Files. Yeah. And, uh, Glenn and Jimmy had a very different sense of what the show wanted to be than Mick, much less the people who wrote the original script. So it was a really weird 13 episodes on any given episode was like, eh, no, we're over here. We're scary. No, we're touching. No, we're funny. No. We're... Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Julianne Nicholson. I don't know if you know her as an actress. Yeah. That was her first kind of her first role. Um, Gabe mocked who was on suits. Uh, that was his first TV role of note. Kevin J. O'Connor. John Aylward from ER. It was a good cast. I gotta check this out. It was, and it's a, it's the, I have to say this, it was also the biggest bummer of a last episode of any show you will yeah. ever see. Really? I, if you watch it, I won't spoil it, except to say it's like, well, that's a downbeat ending. <laughs> it's like the mist. Uh, the... <laughs> yeah, again, I won't spoil it, but they, 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 we knew we weren't coming back. Yeah. And Glenn and Jimmy wrote a, a last episode that was designed as a cliffhanger. So if for some miracle, you know, we get picked up, they'd have written their way out of it. Yeah, yeah. So basically, they're saying, fuck you, NBC. Oh. And it's like, okay. I'll say no more. For those of you who want to try and find the others, one, good luck. <laughs> I want to check it out. The All right, good luck. Good luck, the others, yes. 1999, I think. And then two years later, that went off the air and I got Star Trek. So that was sort of a, that was kind of a, the beginning of my, you're the first time I've ever been interviewed that nobody's asked me a Star Trek question, I got to say. Well, well it's don't worry, it's coming. It's <laughs> coming. Is it? I mean, but I, I was on a little show you may have heard of called Star Trek. <laughs> well, we, we wanted to, you know, hit everything, everything that we can. And, and of course, we all know that. That's probably the thing you get asked the most about. So that's why we, we keep it near the end to, you know. I appreciate you know, it. I'm just, I'm just making fun of you at this point. Forget me. That's my name. It's okay. Huh? I'm fine. It keeps disappearing. But I, I do have to say that, um, I mean, I, I myself have been a huge Star Trek fan since Next Generation. Uh, watched all of them, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. And, um, and, and the thing is, your character was, I would say that for me, the best character in Enterprise. You were the one that I kept on wanting to know more about because you always got me invested in, in every episode. Whatever you, I wanted to know what Flux was doing. And that's why I kept on coming back every episode because you he was either that. napping or masturbating or eating. I can tell you. Give me the yes. answer to that question right now. Napping, eating, or masturbating—that's what he was doing, or doing, yes. or saving the saving the universe with some kind of medication, or, or doing all three at the same time. Hey, I, there it is. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I have I, to. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I never. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm not letting you ask any questions. I just keep gabbing. Forgive me. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, the one episode I did want to talk about, which I think is called The Breach, uh, where you yes. as Flux uh, I get uh, a uh, patient from another race, that uh, another species that has a long history with your species, and uh, the whole situation where 
he doesn't want you to uh, cure him because of the hatred. Yeah, and, and I say, fine, your choice. <laughs> but but the, but the speech you gave him about uh, y- your character's sons and your youngest and and that I thought was uh, one of the most moving things on on television. I just That's sweet of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, appreciate I just uh, I mean that's especially we we all know um, everyone has their own different situations, but uh, that kind of thing unfortunately is not uncommon. Where, you know, you have people growing up with, you know, animosity towards another person because of religion, race, or or skin color. And it's, and and you have those who are uh, able and willing to fight against it, and then those that just go into it. Well, that's certainly, yeah. And that's that's been, you know, Star Trek's long history, going back to the original iteration of Star Trek from Roddenberry's, you know, in 66 to 68. I mean, so much of what always animated him was, you know, the absurdity of of judgment based on something as silly as as ethnicity or skin color, you know, familial animosity that stretched back generations. I I think that has been one of the... the the themes of the show. So yes, it was nice to it was nice to have my little part to play in what I would consider to be kind of the maybe the key theme of Star Trek down the years. Um, yeah. I mean, it was always interesting to me, you know, about Star Trek, and I'll I'll plug a little bit of what one of the things that I do, which is to raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition, which is the organization I help support, which again is designed to try and address issues of poverty and hunger in Los Angeles. We have something called Trek Talks every year, uh, two years now. We'll do it again until it starts failing. We'll keep doing it. <laughs> we bring as many Star Trek guests as we can uh, to do an all-day-long digital telethon to raise money for the Food Coalition. And one of the things that really appeals to me is the idea that um, you know the Star Trek community does consist of a lot of folks, fans, podcasters, actors, writers, etc., who fundamentally buy into this this notion that letting go of some of these um, bigotries, and there's really no other word for it, mm-hmm. is critical if we are going to ever achieve the universe that Roddenberry has imagined we could conceivably achieve. I mean, certainly you look at the United States and you think so much of what is driving this horrible dynamic right now is sheer flat-out prejudice. Um, yeah. So, uh, anyway, a long-winded way of saying Trek Talks in January. Come and hear all sorts of great Star Trek personalities and give money to the Hollywood Food Coalition. But also, I love the idea of bringing the Star Trek family together to continue yeah. to support good works, you know, in all the different ways we can help build a better society. And that's what the show should be about. That's what our family, you know, is is kind of should be about. I agree with that. You know, the Trek fans are some one of the biggest groups of yeah. people out there. You know what I mean? And they're, yeah. you know, so, some some of them might have seen some hard times. You know what I mean? They kind of they're no stranger yeah. to hard times, so they got the vibe. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, and it's funny because I find sometimes you know the Star Trek fans when they begin to talk, kind of talk about you know their their different uh, aesthetic, you know, issues with shows, and you know, blah, 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 blah. it's like part of me that always wants to say well let's just talk about the fundamental themes of star trek and how we as citizens in our society can kind of help support some of those some of those underlying you know actions that are required yeah. we're gonna build that federation what are you doing what are you doing in your community yeah. um 
I mean, I mean that's one of the uh, best best thing uh, with Gene Rodney, uh, Roddenberry's uh, vision of Star Trek is you know an ideal future where uh, where exploration you know people getting together for a better uh, better universe, a better society uh, is such an important thing, which unfortunately I think is lost a lot, uh, especially in today's uh, society where there's so much people still fighting about stupid shit and, and realizing that if we all just work together on a common goal, that we can, you know, we can have that future if we all work together. But you'll always have, unfortunately, um, people that, you know, will always go against that because they want more stuff or more popularity or... Or just a feeling of superiority, which unfortunately is what keeps on keeping us from getting to that universe. Yes, I, 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 I was I was like it into a tug of war. It's like there will always be people pulling on the on the side of the rope that is going to pull you into the mud, and then it's sort of our job to try and encourage people who might not be you know pulling yet to kind of get on the side of the rope that pulls towards virtue and pulls towards that perfectible universe. Um, I think that's sort of what Star Trek, you know, to me kind of on a on a bigger level, the fact that it's been around since 1966 and all these iterations of Star Trek and this incredible fandom, to me, the potentiality of what Star Trek means as a um, uh, a metaphor for those people who love it to kind of get behind and push is about join in, you know, join in. You want that universe? Join in. What What are you doing? What are you doing? How do you make it happen? Because we need people on the rope, you know? Because you're right, there'll always be, there'll always be assholes. There'll always be Donald Trumps pulling on the fucking rope. Donald Trump, you know, and his ilk, for them, it's like, hey, you know, the more we divide people along racial lines and class lines, the more we uh, raise animosities, the more likely I'm going to get to keep my taxes low, the more likely I am to continue to kind of hold on to the bigger portion of the pie that otherwise these these virtue crats will want to take from me. And, you know, it's like once upon a time in America, we had what some people would call a confiscatory tax rate, you know, and I understand that we might have needed to balance things out a little bit. But in the 1950s, people who made over $5 million, the amount over $5 million was taxed at up to 90%. And, you know, okay, let's let's figure out a system that works more equitably, even for people who are extremely wealthy. Yeah. But when Reagan came into office, he basically eliminated, we had nine different tax you know, levels, and he knocked it down to three. And we right now, we simply do not raise enough money from people who have much right. to help this society do better by those who have nothing. And that's a choice. That's a choice we make as a society to live with 25% of America living in relative poverty so the people who have millions can hold on to all of it. Hmm. That's crazy. It's, yeah. it's like the people that would, the, the small percentage that they would lose means nothing to them, but like what the, the person doesn't have anything, it's ruining their life. You know? Yeah, there's a, there's a book that just came out. The name of the name of the writer is escaping me. He, his first book was called The Family, which is about this sort of, you know, um, uh, a cadre of of extremely right wing religious fundamentalists who have embroiled themselves into our country's politics so as to make sure that the country is run along right wing Christian lines. The second book is about the economic circumstances that attach to that, which is fundamentally about how do you keep the extremely rich from from you know having to give anything back. 
Mm. And it's, and it's, it's, it's fascinating and deeply depressing as somebody who's spent a lot of time working for not for profits over 40 years. You know, I feel like every time I'm kind of trying to like figure out how to get more lunches to people or dinners to people, it's like I'm putting band-aids on problems that need to be dealt with on the federal level. And there are a bunch of assholes over there who are saying, I don't care if people are poor. In fact, I like people who are poor. I like low-wage society. I like having more money come to me and less money coming to them. I want it that way. Yeah, that's correct. You know, do you believe in like, uh, you know, even above presidencies and stuff, like people call it shadow government, you know, not to be conspiracy, but like, you believe that there's a, a higher bracket of people that re- don't want to look at the, look at the Koch brothers. I mean, yeah. you know, Jane, Jane Mayer writes the New Yorker wrote a, you know, a, a absolutely scintillating book about, about the Kochs and what, what they have done over the arc of the last 40 or 50 years to intentionally make it extremely difficult for government to pass progressive legislation. Um, I mean, I, I can go on and on in this vein because I'm a lefty. Um, in, in my opinion, yes, it, I don't think it's a conspiracy so much as it is that the right wing has been infinitely better organized. And arguably, it starts in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act passed. And Johnson said at the time, wow, we've just given the right wing and the Republican Party an incredible um, uh, 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 leg up politically because all these Southern Democrats who wed... At the at, you know for years and years the progressive coalition was weird. It was northeastern liberals and southern democrats. The northeastern liberals said, "Okay, we'll we'll electrify you, we'll give you water, we'll bring you into the modern age, and in return we'll look the other way while you you know oppress your blacks." Yeah. And that and that was the wedding. The Civil Rights Act broke that wedding, and all the southern democrats went over to the Republicans, and that's where we've been living ever since. Yeah. And every private interest group and business group said, "Oh, I see where my bread is buttered now." I get to join the Republican Party and really ride racism to wealth. Mm. And that's been the structure. Uh, yeah. Scary dude. So you think you really start to think of the stuff going on behind the scenes and not even not even behind the scenes sometimes. It's not even behind the scenes. It's yeah. right out here. It's just that ninety nine percent of America is too busy trying to fucking put bread on the table to pay any attention. Yeah. And that's the other thing that to me is at issue is the right wing is basically said if we can if we can intentionally Ronald Reagan said this he said what are the scariest words in the English language knock 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 I'm here from the government I'm here to help you oh demonize governments government demonize governance and turn all the voters away ah oh, I don't have anything to do with this shit and the only people who will be left to vote are the right wingers yeah that's their that's what they've been selling for years and years and years Government is bad. Progressivism is bad. Give up. You aren't going to get helped. You know what you should do instead? Hate your neighbor. Your neighbor's coming after your shit. That's what you should do instead. That's been the mantra, you know? And it's right out on the surface. It's not like, it's not fucking hidden. Right. Yeah. Not with you. Well, but you can't talk about it, you know? I mean, <laughs> no, we're all going to disappear after this. You know, I mean, I, 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 I you know, I, I rarely am invited back to a second podcast because I tend to not hold my tongue about this. Well, show. You are, you are always welcome back on this podcast yeah. for sure. This, this is definitely, I, this is one of the things that we love on our podcast is that we let the guests go wherever they want to go because we believe in the freedom of speech, the freedom of opinions, whether we agree with them or not. That it's, it should be 
out there. So just start with discussions, force discussions. And that's what I think that uh, our society needs more is instead of just, you know, burning your head in the sand to get out and talk about these things. Because these things aren't going away. So yeah. It's just our political structure is such that, unfortunately, like what the best conversation you can have is when, for instance, a U.S. House of Representatives race is competitive. So that you've got a bunch of people arguing because the person who's going to emerge and take that seat is going to is going to have to, you know, like listen to everybody. So you want yeah. to talk about everything. But most of our house races are effectively uncontested. They're in safe districts. So there's no conversation necessary. You know, two right wing candidates running in a primary are having a very narrow conversation. There's no worry about a left wing candidate competing. And in some safe Democratic districts, the same is true. Two left-wing Democrats in a primary are having a very narrow conversation that doesn't include the right because it's a safe house seat. We've gerrymandered ourselves out of being able to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. The Supreme Court had a chance to weigh in, and they and they said, oh, la, 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 la. Yeah. They could have made a significant, to me, decision that John Roberts failed to make was actually saying, yes, we have a role to play. We should not let states gerrymandered themselves into not having democratic and competitive elections and they and they they punted like gutless cowards mm. it's 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 part it's it's, it's within, within their nature to act that way i feel unfortunately well it's within the conservative majority's nature i mean, no, you know, I mean not, this was not the, this was not the le- the liberal minority they it was yeah. another five to four decision as as you know so many have been Anyway, we can talk about pleasanter things if you like. I, 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 I do have another. I do have a. I have a whole other tone I can use. I know uh, what the with uh, Star Trek. I know that uh, was it a Chris Black writer. Chris Black got he got he got you with a little something, a little uh, zinger on his way out. I think I heard story. Now, this of. is this is the story I tell. And I don't know if it's true or not, but in the <laughs> second season, I believe. Um, at a party, I was making fun of the fact that everybody in my enterprise ran around in their underpants. It was like, when do I get to run around in my underpants? And Chris said, well, what if we had you run around without your underpants? And I said, bring it on, motherfucker. <laughs> Chris Black left the show, and the people who eventually wrote the episode in which I was running around without my underpants in season three, uh, I don't know if they were actually influenced by Chris or not. Could have just been coincidence. But I like to I like to think that Chris put a little memo on the table when he left, saying, "By the way, make sure you get Billingsley naked at some point in season." <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, when you when you did do Community real quick though, the Community segment affair itself, you got to work with uh, Mary Heron, I believe, right? Director yes. of uh, like American Psycho, uh, and also I a director of, of the, she directed an episode of a nine. So I worked. Yes. With I shot Andy Warhol, I believe she did, and uh, the yep. notorious life of Betty Page. Clicks. Yep. Now she was not. She was not. I loved Mary. She was yeah. not um, as as well suited to directing television. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, a film is your baby. It's your vision. It's your voice. How many pages you want? It to, particularly independent films, it's like how many pages I'm going to shoot today. Yada yada yada. Television is a you know, uh, it's not so much as an intensely collaborative process as it's not ultimately the director's baby. You know, yeah, true. it's the showrunner's baby, and here's the, you got to shoot eight pages today. And I, I don't, I don't think Mary's temperament was incredibly well suited right. to, to kind of like. Uh, I like Mary a lot. I, I got along very well with Mary, but I think Mary was frustrated. Um, at, at, at uh, I don't, you know, I'm just speculating, but the sense I mean, that's, I a, 
it's definitely a great like point coming to that because you have film directors that come in and do the TV and the scheduling. You don't really think that it would be like throw you off track a little bit or something, but like it really. Yeah, and you don't, and you don't. I mean, I know this was also a frustration for Mary on the Nine is that you know it's it's. I don't want to be delicate about this because I don't like to throw anybody under the bus, but you know the reality is is that on television it's hard sometimes for a director to speak to an actor and say, this is what I'm looking for because an actor feels like I, I own this character. Right. I'm going to be here next week and you're not. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Like, uh, thank you. <laughs> so a director can feel very like, you know, uh, uh, I'm not being listened to here. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes directors on television kind of become very delicate and very tentative about how they direct actors who are series regulars and they don't really say anything. And and it's it sort of becomes about just line up the shot, get the day, move it forward, process the day. And I I, I think actors sometimes in, in essence kind of you know cut their own nose off to spite their face because they don't really allow directors to direct. You know, it's, it's more like a featured name almost, just like a guest director type. Yeah, and, and, and what happens is the director puts all of the intentionality behind. I want to direct actors. I'll give. I'll make sure the guest star. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the it's like having guested on a lot of shows. It's like, here comes a director. He can't say anything to series regulars. Okay, come on. What do you, I'll, I'll, I'll let you practice on me. Yeah. <laughs> well, like for, with TV, it's like, what is like a schedule for TV? You, if you go, do they shoot it way ahead of time? Or are you actually going week to week, so to speak, ever? In terms I'm of sorry. when the show eventually airs after it's. Yeah, been- you're like, like when you recall, like when you do the filming. How long does it usually take for that episode to make it to air after you guys film? It's, it's, it's different now with streaming. I mean, streaming, okay. you know, can be months. Um, network television, usually, you know, you were maybe from, from shooting. You shoot, and then it's got at least a couple of weeks to kind of go through and edit. And then, you know, usually it goes to the editor. The editor will do his edit. Then the director will look at it and, you know, say, hey, I want these notes. And then the, the showrunner, executive producer, will look at it. And, you know, maybe there'll be a fourth pass. Um, post-production. So I, at least two to three weeks before it's finished. I, I would say generally expect from when you wrap, it's not, it's going to be a month before that episode airs. Mm. Um, but like my wife just did one of a nine, nine, one, one Lone Star, I think. And, and it, it was four months before mm. that episode came out, which is weird. And like so, a TV would typically, they do a Monday through Friday or do they do like a Monday through Thursday type deal? Monday through Friday and, and, you know, every now and again, if they're, you know, a pinch, they'll even go Monday through Saturday. You're not going to do that more often than, you know, a couple of weeks a year. But, um, and then, you know, the hours, like the good doctor, I was just on the good doctor. They, they have a much more human schedule than a lot of TV shows. They try and cap it at, at 10 hour days, mm-hmm. but 12 to 14 hour days, I would say, are, are normative on television. Um, and I mean, you know, it's, it, I, I character actors, Hey, we, we're, we're swimming in gravy as far as I'm concerned. I mean, yeah. I, I come in and like, maybe I'll have one or two busy days, but generally speaking, you know, I'm not asked to carry an episode. If you're number one, it's a bitch. And yeah. if you're, if you're the crew, I mean, you know, hair and makeup, especially, I think the departments that always have to get there first, cause you know, they're going to make up the the act the actors before everybody else in the crew arrives yeah. but the crew's there every day day in day out i always thought as an actor that it was my responsibility to make the day move you know it's like if, you, if you're going to raise an issue you, you raise an issue with a solution or shut up and i I've, I've found that over the years that's one of the things that like you know 
kind of separates the men from the boys. Actors who say, and it's just a bitch. It's like, hey, you know what? I don't have time for the lament. What solution are you proposing? If it's a good one, maybe we can do it. You got to be able to say, I think the reason that this scene is having a problem is because this guy is actually not really pursuing a strong action. I'm wondering if maybe what he should be doing instead is yada yada, and that would affect the scene this way. Can I try it? If they say no, that's it. If they say, uh, okay, let's try it. And you solved it. Great. Now you're keeping the day going. Um, a good team, a good director, a good cast keeps it clicking. Um, I've been on shows where, you know, one actor, it's like, we're tacking an hour and a half onto the day. Yeah. You know, because they're going to slow it fucking down. Yeah, it's it's quite a, yeah, the pacing, I feel like, would be a lot different, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, nine times out of ten, the scene is the scene. It's pretty straightforward, and this doesn't yeah. require a, a ton of conversation. But there are always scenes that are, you know, that are linchpin scenes, hinge scenes, where it's like, okay, this is... This is a, this is the scene that makes or breaks this this episode, or or you know, really could could deleteriously shift our understanding of who this person is, yeah. and we need to have a little bit of clarity about it. So you better have thought it through, so that when you come in, you have a really strong foundation on which to stand to say, "Here's my thought," and and I and to that extent, I sometimes think that's sort of where you get to have a career if you're known as somebody who can. Get the day, you know, get people out, do good work. Your your presentation uh, uh, to the director and to the writers is clear and crisp and and specific, and you, you and you take your losses. Sometimes it's like, no, uh-uh. you still got to make the scene work. Sometimes you get a direction that's like, I was just on a show, and, and I liked the director a lot, but he kept saying, I want this matter of fact. It's like matter of fact is a behavioral manifestation. I need to turn that into a playable action. You don't play matter of fact you play i'm going to put a lid on my emotions because otherwise i'm going to lose my shit you got to be able to translate i used to have a, an actor friend who said you have to be director proof and it didn't mean that he was in, he, he didn't like or appreciate good directors he meant that directors speak a different language actors speak a language ideally if it's rooted in intention what am i going for what am i going for what am i trying to achieve directors speak in terms of results this is what i want to see and you got to be able to translate quickly Young actors. I'm vamped out. Big fan of you is Mike Spencer and True Blood. You, know you saw I mean? a lot of me. You saw a lot of me in the second season. Yeah, yes. that's right. <laughs> didn't realize when I was signing a nudity waiver that I was signing it for my fucking life. You don't think they're going to come into play when you sign them. You just go, well, this is just in case. You know. No, I, went, I went to my wife and said, hey, guess what? I get to sign a nudity waiver. I thought, it was like, oh, I'll dance around and then I won't see. And it's like, whole fucking season it's like one it's really cold yeah <laughs> los angeles at night we're yeah. desert it's cold so we're all running around you know getting it on and come home in the wee small hours in the morning my wife yeah. would say what did you do last night it's like i rubbed chocolate cake on some woman's tits and then you know, i did dirty yeah. somebody from behind it's like she was like uh-huh i'd say it was miserable it was cold <laughs> yeah it wasn't pleasant and it, it, wasn't, it was like, you know, <sighs> oh. I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about True Blood. 
those True Blood fans can't be as rabid as those Trekkie fans, can they? I know that there's the True Blood fans are pretty diehard. Well, I was, I was, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have a particularly big part on True Blood, and, and after the second season, they didn't yeah. use me at all. So it wasn't. I don't really have any kind of. Uh, you know, I remember when True Blood was on; that was the biggest thing going. I even have like the True Blood drink somewhere. Oh yeah, right, right, right. For the first, uh, for the first couple of seasons, I think, yeah. I think, and I, I myself, you know, to a certain extent, because they didn't use me after the third season much. I, I, I didn't watch as much, yeah. but I, I kind of felt it kind of like they introduced, you know, like one too many, you know, werewolves and yeah. it did fizzle, fairies and yeah. Because to me, the whole thing at the beginning was it's like vampirism as a metaphor for homosexuality. Yeah. It was like interesting. It's like, okay, you know, here we are in a society in which we're trying to say, okay, we're going to mainstream people that we used to treat as outcasts. Yeah. I thought the metaphor got lost. And, and, and they kind of, to me, sort of like, eh. Yeah. It, it, just, it just became kind of antic for its own sake. Um, I loved the show. I loved that I was only on very briefly. Was Alan Ball's show before that about the Undertaker family? Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under. With uh, Dexter, pre Dexter, yeah. I thought that was a great show. Maybe I'll say it's welcome by one season, but that was a great show. I like that. How was working with that crew? The good, good group of people? I, I only, I was, I was, when you know, every episode started with a death. Yeah. I was the death in one episode, so I didn't work with any of the regular cast. Okay. Although Kathy Bates directed me, and that was fun. Oh, that's I got, cool. I got hit in the head with a frying pan because I was too dull. My wife was being driven. That <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, was a great show. I remember that. That was a really good time. I have to say, um, uh, another series that I, I really liked uh, that you were on, you were on for uh, a few episodes, which was uh, Turn uh, Washington Spies. Uh, you played yeah. Samuel Townsend. Yeah, I like that show too. That show, unfortunately, was supposed to go uh, an additional season, and they pulled the plug on it prematurely. So, although they had written seasons, or at least they had they had sketched out seasons four and five, they effectively were told to condense into one season, season four. So they condensed me right out of the show. <laughs> so yeah, that's another show I kind of was like, but I bye. <laughs> I mean, uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, uh, how does it feel? uh, I mean, uh, you like doing like uh, historical pieces, you know, and and, and that kind of stuff, like going into the history and doing research like that and kind of like, you know, immersing yourself in, 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 you know, stuff like that? No, again, you don't need to. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, when I was younger, I used to kind of feel like, you know, Uda Hagen famously wrote a book called Respect for Acting and a number of other people, you know, I think, uh, although Uta Hagen kind of went on to say, you know, now that uh, years have passed, I kind of want to revisit that book. I think a lot of people were of the mind, I certainly was when I was younger, that it was important to kind of like do this, you know, very intense biography and what did I have for breakfast? And blah, 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 blah. I, I, as I've gotten older, feel like 95% of that is not germane. You know, uh, when I'm talking to you right now, I'm not fucking thinking about what I have for breakfast. I'm not, <laughs> not thinking about, you know, the historical reality of, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just yeah. in a moment. Yeah. To me, acting is about opening yourself up to the moment, really listening and having a strong sense of intention. And generally speaking, the fact that I'm wearing a powdered wig doesn't have anything to do with it. That character, for instance, I didn't I needed to have some set, sense of what the the historical circumstances were in a war. Yeah. You know, one has to be extremely careful and very delicate 
Um, I'm trying to keep, you know, in the middle ground. I don't want to alienate anybody. I want to piss anybody off. But my bottom line reason for doing that is because I have a strong philosophical belief that violence is never the answer. That's, that is not, I don't need to know everything about the Revolutionary War to understand what it means to have that belief system. You know, nine out of ten times, your action is rooted in something that is deeply felt that you can find in yourself and is not conditioned on the circumstance. You need to know enough about the circumstance to understand what to find within yourself, but you don't need to know everything. You know, I mean, because that, that puts you in a position of why not you read one more book about the Revolutionary War? You could act it even better if you read one more book about the Revolutionary <laughs> War. And you know what? You'd even be better if you read three more books about the Revolutionary War. It's like, you know, I could stuff my head with Revolutionary War. isn't going to help me act that scene one whit better. Yeah. Well, John, this was, this was a lot of fun. Alex, do you have any anything else you want to ask up? Oh, just uh, I just wanted to say it has been a pleasure. I am so happy that uh, you took the time to talk to us about your career and and the stuff that you love, and that's and that's what we love. We love talking about and finding more about uh, the people we interview, stuff that we didn't know about, and and we're happy that you took the time to uh, let us know more about you. Yes, Anytime, sir. my pleasure, my pleasure. We, we do have our big closer question, of course. Oh. Absolutely. Which is, you know, we get a lot of filmmakers, actors, musicians, comedians, authors that listen to and watch the show. Do you have any advice for a creative that finds themselves in a slump that, you know, some words of advice or anything you might have used or passed off to somebody that uh, could help them kind of get through it? Well, you know, I mean, I, a slump is interesting. I mean, I think that's there. We impose that on ourselves, you know, what a slump. Yeah. Means. I mean, I think as much as anything for me, and this is just a function of age, I certainly have gone through those little periods where it's like I'm not getting cast, I'm not working. I, I think it's really important that you recognize that 90% of your life is lived in relationship to the people you love. Mm. And that's important, you know. Yeah. The work is the work. It comes and goes. It's got its ups and downs. The way, the way in the end you're going to feel on your deathbed, you're going to be happy if you feel you're surrounded by friends and loved ones. And I, I think in the end, it's like I would just say, take everything that is feeling is making you feel crazy about the work, and and put it in perspective. The work is not your life. Your life is your life. Mm-hmm. What do you do in your community? Go out and see a pal. You know, have sex with your wife. Ooh. You know, take your kid on the Ferris wheel. Have yeah. sex with your kid. Take your wife on the Ferris wheel. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, see, I was going really nicely. I'm right to leave very. I angry. was going to say that was. I was getting ready to say that's beautiful, and I was I mean, like, I can't throw I a beautiful on. I could feel you getting ready to say that, and I had to subvert <laughs> them. Because, well, uh, John, but, that that was great advice. I like that a lot. You know, it's it's huge. You know, that's big family. You know, it is that thing that you, the thing you said about you know worry about your life and not the things you know the work is. I, 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 I th- there's a there's a book I love. Well, there are two books that come to mind. One is um, Thinking Fast and Slow. By Daniel, I can never pronounce his name. He's an Israeli writer, um, but but a, a less a, a less abstruse and and easier to access book that deals with the same thing is called Stumbling on Happiness, mm. and they're both about the ways in which our little our little brain fuck gets in the way of making decisions about about how we behave in the world that will make us happy. You know, power. The power of now is another interesting book that I think kind of addresses this. I really think that so much of our journey is about, like, you know, look, 
you have choices to make that are fundamentally rooted in how you can be happy in this world. And, and, you know, it's the work is one aspect of who you are and the least thing you can probably control. What you can control are the relationships you choose to make central to your life every day. The focus that goes into those relationships will give you happiness. And from happiness comes the work. I honestly think. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that completely. You know what I mean? Well, John, this was fantastic, man. This was a great time. Thank you again. My pleasure. We'll have you on again. And it was okay. uh, Trek Talks. Is there like a website or a Facebook page that people? Yeah, go to track trekgeeks.net and uh, they kind of are our uh, podcast parent. Uh, ditto Roddenberry.com. They kind of co produce the event every year, the wonderful John Champion, the wonderful Bill Smith, the wonderful Dan Davidson. It's a team of 10. I won't list everybody, but David Livingston, the guy who's directed more Star Trek episodes than anybody in Star Trek history, is a partner, also a member of the board of the Hollywood Food Coalition. He's really instrumental. Um, Yeah, January, usually the... uh, I won't give you a date, but it'll be the first weekend or two. That's definitely cool. It's a cool experience, and you guys are doing a good thing, you know. So definitely, people get out there and support that. We need more good stuff. Yeah, and you can check out Hollywood Food Coalition at hofoco h o f o c o dot org if you're interested in supporting the work we do in Los Angeles. We help distribute food that we rescue over two million pounds of food a year to about 130 not for profits to help buttress and augment their meal programs. Very good, man. Kudos, dude. Big props. Much respect and love for that. I love seeing a dude making a change. You know what I mean? That's a beautiful getting out there and actually doing it. You know, a lot of people like to talk like myself. I like to talk about it, but we got someone over here that actually likes to do it and uh, the greater good. You know what I mean? Making the world a better place. I, I won't. I won't go on and on, but I'm a great believer that one of the things that you know to answer your question that should animate us if we're feeling stuck in our work is think about what you can do to volunteer in your community that will make you happy. And it's like figuring out your volunteeristic bliss. Maybe that's tutoring a kid in school. Maybe it's volunteering in a library. For me, it was kind of getting involved in an organization that works with people who are hungry. Everybody has a different, like, you know, animating spirit. You know, clean up the park. If there's something that's going to make you feel like you've given back, and that's what's daunting in our work is we feel like we're not giving back. You know, the work is stuck. I'm not giving back. Give back in a different direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? You you know you get you depressed, feeling empty. You know you're looking for a way to pick it up. Nothing help. You know helping somebody up, put a smile on somebody else's face and, is the and quickest it's, way it's to get one. Principle but, of acting. Acting yeah. is doing. You know, I used to teach, and it's like it, it, the thing that makes you an actor in the end is is you do. You do. You're always doing something. And in your career, when you feel like you're not doing anything, find a way to do. You know, it doesn't have to be acting. You gotta do. You gotta be doing shit. Yeah. So, anyway, that's my two cents. That's it. I like it. All right. right cool. Ciao, Bella. Ciao, Bella. Have a lovely Sunday. You too. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Later to meet you both. you got that little tiny patch of wall. I want that covered the next time I see you. <laughs> right up here? I'm going to yeah. cover it with my hand. <laughs> All right. All right, John. Have a good evening over there. We'll talk Thank to you, you soon. Much obliged, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was uh, the great John Billingsley. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, a great sit down.
you know, big fan of the dude leading in, and uh, we were not disappointed. Great guy, greater than I even could imagine. Great guy as a person doing great things is a good way to put it, and uh, we appreciate that because me and Alex sometimes take ourselves to, you know, maybe be semi-great guys doing semi-great things, and it's good to have good people on the show, and I guess we're semi-great doing great things if, you know, we're pushing this, and uh Trek talks and stuff like that. We'll we'll be pushing on our show because uh, stuff like that's big, man. It's great giving back. If people want the aliens to come back, you got to make humanity worth wanting to be friends with. Uh, hence, taking care of each other and uh, the whole vibe. For you Treks out there listening, like Alex. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about uh, you have so many people who are. Huge fans of Star Trek, of Gene Roddenberry's vision, but I mean, it's always it's always easier to agree or, or watch something, but it's always harder to actually do. Hmm. And uh, and the thing is, I mean, he's doing it, and uh, he's he's trying his best in his uh, community to try to hopefully start up. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision to, you know, I mean, the whole purpose of Star Trek is an ideal version of the future where we put all of our animosity aside for whatever uh, trivial reasons and work together for the common good to, you know, go out to explore, to go on a track, to, you know, learn about Go on a track. Yeah. Trek Enterprise on Star Trek. But, I got you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it was great talking to John. He's an uh, extremely talented actor. I've uh, been a fan of his for a long time, and it was an honor to have him on the show. And as as we said on the show, that you know, getting to talk about his love for reading, his his charity work. I mean, those those kind of stories. I. Mean, you, I mean, I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't know that much. And he, he, we ended up talking a lot about that, which is what I love about our show: is going to find out the the, the deeper side, the, uh, the the side that they don't talk about on podcasts, because everyone wants to hear about, of course, the the movie stories, the TV stories, which we all love, and and that's one things we love about a podcast. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the human stories, the human stories is what I think um, makes, our, uh, makes our podcast even better. That's my I personal forgot. opinion. No, I'm with you, man. I forgot to ask about 2012. Woo! Next time. We'll definitely have him on again. He was a good dude. And um, uh, heck yeah. If y'all like that episode, go check out more episodes wherever you listen or watch the Boom Bastard cast. Uh, if you like to, uh, you're looking to support your, your BBC boys over here in the financially department, you know, we got our Patreon page at Boombastic with Boombastic with two O's at streaming, you know, Boombastic streaming at Patreon.com. We've got different tiers of uh, perks of cool things for people who's looking to support. You don't have to, but if you can and you want to, it's there. I mean, and you can be a great person doing great things, too, if you going to support your boys at the boo. So, with that being said, we'll catch all y'all on the next episode of that boom cast.
Peace. Peace.